You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Dancing Man, a fabulous invalid podcast featuring exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with the cast and creative team of Bob Fosse's Dancing on Broadway. I'm Rob Russo. I'm Jamie Dumont. And we're your hosts. We're also excited to be co-producers of Dancing on Broadway and thrilled, as always, to be back in the Rosevale Cocktail Room at Civilian for another great conversation. Yes, and I feel like I say this every week, that this week is a special one, but this week is a special one because we're talking to our lead producer, Joey Parnes. And we are very fond of Joey Parnes. Yes, yes, yes. If you... If you don't know who Joey is, he's now in his fifth decade working on Broadway. He's an eight-time Tony Award-winning producer and general manager who runs Joey Parnes Productions, a.k.a. The Parnes Office, which has been behind such hits as Hello, Dolly, Bright Star, The Humans, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, Hair, and so much more. Earlier in his career, Joey worked on such iconic shows as Dreamgirls, La Cage aux Folles, Grand Hotel, and Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk. He served as the executive producer and later the interim executive director of the Public Theater, as well as the coordinating producer of the Tony Awards from 2001 to 2008, and since 2012, the producer of the Drama Desk Awards. Joey, for my money, is one of the true unsung heroes of Broadway who works behind the scenes to make all the magic happen, and we're so thrilled to have the very rare chance to chat with him about that work. Okay, two things. I think, A, that's one of the biggest bios we've had, Yes, and B... (laughs) It's going to take everything within my power not to talk about Dreamgirls with Joey Parnes. Yes. Well, it's going to be tough, but I think I can do it. Let's try. Okay, let's try. Here's our conversation with Joey Parnes. Joey, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Dancing open to great reviews. We're now a couple of weeks into the run, so I have to ask, how are you feeling today? Well, I think the show speaks for itself, and the ecstatic audience response Mm. that we seem to get after every performance is kind of the key. I have rarely seen audiences come out of a theater as high as the audience comes out of (laughs) the music box theater, every performance. And so the proof is in that. I, I, you know, I always say the audience is never wrong and they have let us know by virtue of their reactions to the show that they kind of love it. There have been very few experiences that I'm aware of where 
there's a partial or even full standing ovation in the middle of a show. <laughs> Bette Midler got it when she sang Hello, Dolly and Hello, Dolly. But but the top of act two, on, certainly on opening night, we had a full standing ovation after Sing, Sing, Sing. And I think each night uh, the audience wants to do that. They just don't realize they're allowed to. Yeah. So they do everything else short of that. And then there are a few people who do actually stand up. But but the um, the audience response to me is the is is the the validation, if you will, for mm. for why it was important to do the show and and how it's having an impact on theater people today. Well, you're the lead producer of the show, and the term producer, I think, can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, especially in different facets of the entertainment industry. So I'm wondering if you could share for our listeners just you, how you describe what it is that a producer does. And then your office is also the general manager for the show. So what does a general manager do versus what a producer does? And how do you navigate the two? I'll answer the second question sure. first, if that's okay. I, I Because I grew up, uh, you know, I was an assistant to a producer and then I was an assistant company manager and then a company manager. <laughs> and anyway, I, I, I worked my way up over many years from the management side. Yeah. So over the years, especially when I transitioned into being a producer, I I came to the conclusion that, that producing and managing are on a spectrum. Um, and at one end of the spectrum, there are things that are, you know, producery. <laughs> like casting, you know, general managers don't generally go to an audition. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are things that are managerial, like uh, producers don't usually uh, negotiate contracts. Okay. But in between, in that in between part of that spectrum, there, there are so many overlapping issues that play into one another. So the general manager part of my brain understands the economics, but the producer part of my brain understands what the artistic vision is. And, and I think you end up with a better outcome when there's, a, when there's real communication between those two so that you're making you know, artistic decisions that can live within a budget. You're making budgetary decisions that actually fulfill the artistic vision of the creative team. And when there isn't that kind of communication, you can end up, you know, making a mistake or have issues that you wouldn't otherwise have. The way I offset the fact that it can never be a good idea for all of that to be happening in the brain of one human <laughs> yeah. is I surround myself with people who are smarter than I am and who are just as devoted and dedicated to the to the final, you know, thing that we're all working on together so that... Um, it's really a collaborative effort in, in the office in terms of managing and producing. And some people kind of are on a management track and some people are on a producer track, but we're constantly overlapping. And so the, the, the way I kind of think about producing and managing is that they're together. Right. And so, um, you, you know, and that's developed over a number of years and, and I wouldn't really know how to produce a show that I wasn't managing. And I wouldn't ever really want to manage a show that I wasn't producing because I just see too many ways that, that, they're, that those issues are, are uh, integrated. And, and in order to make the best choices, in order to make the right decisions, you really need to be informed from, from both heads, if you will. 
So that's kind of my philosophy, but it's also the way we operate um, at our at our office. In in terms of you know what does a producer do? I, I mean, the the word has <laughs> been applied to lots of different people, and 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 it's uh, I guess it's accurate in terms of how it is applied to lots of different people. But the fact is there are, you know, there are hands-on producers, you know, who like get into the mud of it all. And then there are producers who raise money and, and make big decisions and delegate to others to, to get a lot of the stuff done. I am a mud producer. I rather- Is that a technical term? Well, that's my term. <laughs> I much prefer being in the mud of it all. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like being distanced from the people or from the problems. I like the, the problems. And, and so for me, producing is uh, working with all the people that you see on the title page of a program and all the people that you see in the credits section of the program and enabling everybody to do their best work enabling everybody to work together in the best conceivable way and creating an environment where all of that can happen. So, so to me, it's, it's creating not just an environment, but, but creating a sense of family, creating a sense of community, creating an atmosphere where there is no fear, where people can ask questions, where people can, can come up with ideas that sound a little crazy, but actually could turn out to be great or could spire, inspire someone else to come up with a great uh, idea. And, and so for me, yeah, producing involves picking the show and putting the team together and raising the money and, you know, all of those things. But, but in a grander sort of philosophical sense, I think it's, it's creating the environment where everybody who is collaborating on, on that particular show can do their best work. And, and when that works really well, when everybody's in sync, the outcome is terrific whether the show is a financial success or not. And I've kind of worked on a bunch of shows that were very successful and shows that were technically not successful, but everyone felt really good about what they did and how, how their contribution made the show the thing that it was. And, and in my view, that meant all the shows were successful, regardless of, you know, whether they made money or ran a long time or won an award, those are not things that motivate me as a producer. Yeah. Would you say that the producer general manager office business model is unique to Broadway or is it a common practice? I think there are just a few of us who do that. Mostly general managers do management. Some have begun, begun to be executive producers, which is a kind of bridge position between general manager and producer. Um, you know, in, in TV and movies, executive producer is the is the one who's at the top of the whatever it is. In in our lexicon, the producer is the one who is the driver, and the executive producer is in service to the show and to the producer. But but most of the general managing offices manage, and then producers generally produce. I think there are maybe two or three offices that um, do both in the way that we do. Was there a, was there a show in which or show or a moment in your career where you said, okay, this is the first one where we're going to produce it and we're going to general manage it? Do you remember when that was? <laughs> yes, it was kind of a gradual development 
on on one level. I was when I, when I left the public theater, I started working with Liz McCann, mm-hmm. and and at one point, you know, she decided to give me the title of executive producer, and that was nice. But it didn't change what I was doing. You know, I was doing whatever I was doing. I was helping to raise money. I was the general manager. I was, you know, in the midst of pretty much everything. As our relationship developed and as we did more and more, I I got more involved in a, a number of of the uh, elements of putting of putting the show together. But but the probably the the moment where it all congealed was when the tour of Hair hmm. Uh, was was already booked and the company was engaged and we had a schedule and and I was the executive producer and general manager and at that point Liz was not involved anymore but but we we basically lost our our lead producer and so the choice was what do we do the public theater was still a part of the of the producerial mix but they were really not in a position to drive that I couldn't see walking away from the project, considering how many people were already committed to it and, and all the presenters were, were ready for, to receive the show. And so I took a leap and said, okay, I'll, I'll do this. That was really the first time that I actually, you know, took on uh, the, the responsibility as a liability producer. You know, the, the responsibility, the day-to-day, the mechanics of it all, I had been doing for quite some time, but that was when I went, oh, okay, I've now gotten to this other place. And I was petrified, (laughs) um, literally petrified. But I felt like I had no choice uh, because of, you know, all the people who were involved. And then it turned out to be, you know, okay. (laughs) Um, Because the general manager was really good. (laughs) Made sure that the show didn't go over budget or whatever. Well, it did probably. But, you know, we we were able to, I would say, oh, it's always a miracle. But miraculously, we we were able to turn that tour into a a profitable tour, which at the beginning, it wasn't clear that it would ever be. And then once once that happened, then it became like, oh, I guess so. This is what, this is what I'm going to do. I think it was the Verdon Fosse legacy that shared on Instagram either before the first preview <clears throat> or opening night that it was like 16 or 18 years in the making. Basically, you know, saying it took a long time to get this show on Broadway. I'm curious along the path <laughs> of this new production of Dance and you know finally opening. When did you get involved and how did it come about? I had not been involved. Uh, for all of that time, yeah. there was a, at one point um, the show was was going to be done at the Old Globe, but there were there were issues connected to some of the mechanics of putting the show together that that w- weren't quite aligning. And so Barry Edelstein, who's the artistic director of the Old Globe, with whom I've done a number of shows and we have a great relationship came to visit me in the office, I can remember exactly when, it was December of 2019, <laughs> sat in the, on the couch and basically said, would you be willing to help in this endeavor? And I said, of course. And so that was when I, that's when I got involved in December of, of 2019, which of course was just a few months prior to March of yeah. 2020 when the whole world shut down. Mm. So I, so, so, that's when I, I got involved. We, we realized that we had to get all the music rights, that, that the, the music rights had not merged with the show 45 years ago. So everything had to be 
newly acquired. And that was going to take a bunch of time. Well, guess what we had, (laughs) you know, because of the shutdown, we spent a lot of time getting those rights uh, lined up. Then at a certain point, we, we realized that uh, doing the, the the reconstruction of the actual uh, Fosse choreographic steps was was going to require a lot of very painstaking time with a small group of people. Um, and so once we got past a certain moment in the pandemic when we could be in a room with folks, even if we were wearing masks, mm-hmm. we started that process. But it was, it, I can't remember the precise number of sessions that we did, but there were quite a few sessions where, uh, with a small handful of dancers, uh, Wayne and the, and, and the creative team got together and basically pieced it all back. And so we took advantage of all of that time when no one was able to put a show on so, to, to get the work ready. And it was way more involved than I think anyone realized at first what it was going to take. And then once we emerged out of the worst part of the pandemic, we we organized a work session. Uh, First, of course, we had to cast the show (laughs) and and, you know, doing auditions during the pandemic, that was a huge challenge. Although in retrospect, it may have actually been a boon because we, you know, Tara Rubin's office, they must have gotten over a thousand video submissions, a thousand video submissions that they actually had to look at. (laughs) Um, You know, that, that got whittled down to 500 people who were then invited to come to in-person auditions. And, and of course, at that point in the pandemic, we were, you know, wearing masks most of the time, but not wearing masks some of the time. And, and so it was complicated. You'd have a room of, you know, 30 dancers. They were all learning a complicated dance routine with masks on. Ugh. But then at, at the moment when finally they were ready to perform it, they could take their masks off. It was... As I say it now, it, it all seems so quaint and what's the big deal? But at the time, you know, every every choice we made was, you know, feeling like we were taking our lives in our hands a little bit. But that audition process took quite a long time to get from 1,000 to 500 down to ultimately the 16 and four understudies that we put together for the work session. And that group was also the group that eventually went to the Old Globe. And basically came to Broadway. And the 16, the 16 are the same 16 that that are now on Broadway. The understudies, that shifted a little bit. We we had four in, in San Diego, two chose not to continue on with the show, and then we added four. So now we have six. But I like to call it a company of 22 because yeah. those understudies are phenomenal and they are virtually interchangeable with anybody in the company. And, and you know, they're all amazing. And- we talked to, we've talked to a couple of them, but we spoke to Afra just about her note process yeah. and how she, how she actually captures what it is she has to do and retains it. And it, all you have to do is listen to that and know that it is one of the hardest jobs out there. Uh, uh, understudies are, unbelievable, especially in a show like this, where each of them covers a certain number of tracks, okay? And 
sometimes the tracks overlap. Sometimes, you know, you, you need to learn what this guy is doing over on stage right in the same number that you're now learning what this other person is doing on stage left, and you have to keep that straight in your head. So understudies brains are kind of amazing. They should be studied. They yes. should be. And the yeah. other thing we've learned, which I don't think Rob and I had ever thought about before we did this podcast, which was not only is it the choreography on stage, but it's the backstage choreography. It's the quick changes that the understudies, that everyone has to learn, but particularly the understudies, because if you're doing one track, it's going to be different than the other track. It's just, it's endless. And it's it also is. really a matter of safety more right. than it's a matter of performance because mm. The speed with which everything takes place backstage yeah. in terms of scenery, props, costume changes, insane. The, 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 the dressers yeah. are on the same plane <laughs> as the dancers, if you ask me. They, they run around back there like unbelievable. They, there are only eight of them and they have to change those, some of those changes are so fast and and so they have, they have um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they, they took the dance and logo that, that, that we created with Spotco and, they've, and they modified it into dressing and it looks <laughs> fabulous. It is so great. That's incredible. Um, I love that. I think they're planning to make t-shirts. <laughs> they should. I, I can't wait to see I know one. where they can get them done. <laughs> Before we move on with, with the show, I just have a quick question because you mentioned the music rights and I just, it, it ticked something in my brain, which is, when you were doing the music rights process and, you know, the, the 78 production, the original production had some music that didn't make it to, to the revival. And I'm curious, were some of that music rights or were they artistic uh, choices in terms of some of the music not coming over or not? Yeah, not mo being I would say, I would say that almost every decision that, that uh, related to the cutting of things had nothing to do with rights. It had to do with Wayne's judgment about what would work today that, you know, it may have worked 45 years ago, but it wouldn't necessarily work today. Um, and besides the show was three acts in its original form and now it is in two acts. So there was a certain amount of trimming that had to be done for all the obvious uh, reasons. But we've been pretty lucky, I think, in in getting the rights to the music that 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 we needed. I'm not sure there was anything that we ultimately had to give up because we couldn't get the rights. There's a funny joke in the yes. in the in the show <laughs> about that, but it's just a joke. It, it, it was not really don't tell, don't tell anyone. But it's it, one of the better laughs. In it's the one evening, of the yeah. best laughs ever. But yeah, it, but yeah. we didn't have that. We didn't really have that problem. No, but the but but uh, you know one of the things about about the show that um, was not. Uh, exploited in the best sense of the word, exploited 45 years ago was was once the show ran on Broadway and did a tour in, uh, you know, across the United States, it played 10 weeks, a limited run at the Drury Lane in, in London. And I think the American company went to Tokyo for a, a week or something and did performances there. And that was it. Mm. The show was never licensed. It was never done anywhere else ever again. And one of the reasons, was the difficulty of the choreography, obviously, but there are plenty of professional dance and theater companies around the world who mm -hmm. could find dancers capable of it. But the rights, the music rights did not get, a, they didn't acquire the music rights worldwide. They got them for US, UK, 
and that was it. So what we're doing is we we are we either have or in the process of of finalizing getting the rights worldwide, mm. so that so that in success this show can be done in its current form anywhere in the world. And we already are on the cusp of doing a major deal with somebody who's going to who wants to do it in nine different countries in oh, Europe. Wow. We've got someone who is really interested in doing it all over South America. We've gotten people expressing great interest for doing it in Asia and Australia. So, you know, I think I think this is just another opportunity to burnish the reputation of Bob Fosse worldwide because no one other than those few people I mentioned have ever seen the show. Yeah. In any form. Now, this version of dancing is 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 different than the original. It has lots of elements that come directly from the original. But then Wayne created a bunch of stuff that didn't exist, always using absolute Fosse choreography. So it's kind of a it's a new production of a of an old title is the way yeah. I like yeah. to think of it. Well, and the reality is if Bob had been alive to mount a revival of Danson, A, he probably wouldn't have, but B, <laughs> he wouldn't have done exactly the same thing. Exactly. And right. I think that's very important yeah. to remember when we look at the current show because of that fact. It's 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 sort of embedded in who he was as an artist. And so it makes perfect sense that Wayne, who is the only person I think we all agree <laughs> that could ever have tackled this, right. has that license to be able to, to have some freedom. Right, but, but also it's very important to note that, that Nicole, who is yes. um, Bob Fosse's daughter, has been involved every step of the way with the creative development of the show with Wayne. And nothing that Wayne has done has been without her absolute approval and embrace. So I agree with you that if, if Bob Fosse were here today, he would have either not done a revival or he would have done some newer version of that, of that show. And, and, and so Wayne channeling Bob, but Nicole also doing that, I think they've come up with something that is unique, but also entirely authentic. Mm -hmm. um, it captures the spirit absolutely and the specificity of, of, of Bob Fosse's choreography, but, it's, but it feels to me like a new show. It doesn't feel like, quote unquote, a revival. All the music's been rearranged and reorchestrated, so it sounds more modern. And, you know, the physical production looks nothing like it did right. 45 years ago. It is completely of today. And, and so, uh, you know, I think we have the best of both worlds, really. We have, we have a, 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 a new production that is really feeling new of a show that was really amazing 45 years ago. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I agree with all of that. And I will say as somebody who saw the tour in, I think it was in 1980, 79 or 80 in Chicago, mm-hmm. someone who saw the tour and I was, you know, I was 11 or something. So <laughs> the memory is foggy, but there are moments when I watch the production now and I think particularly like the costumes in Ding, uh, percussion one, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And I think that looks very much like what I remember the feel of the show. And it's also cur- very, very modern. Same, most of the product, most of the costumes in percussion tick that box for me and and it's throughout the entire show so it is a great blend of 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 all the all of the worlds that currently sort of float around the Fosse empire one of the things that jamie and i have learned in our very very young producing careers is that you have to love the piece that you're working on right because you're going to dedicate every minute of your waking hours to it so you really have to love it and it's very clear in the conversations we've had and the meetings we've been privy to that everyone involved in the show really loves it. So I'm wondering if you could share for us what this show means to you personally and why you were so excited when Barry called you to to say yes and to get involved. This isn't the only reason, but (laughs) when I started uh, working in the Krauss office in 1981 on Dreamgirls, I was the assistant company manager. The show was one of Marvin's shows. Dancing had opened in 1978. It was running in 1981, and it was one of the shows in the Krauss office. And I was so new and so young and so dumb that I didn't know that I could ask to see it. And nobody invited me, for God's sake. (laughs) And so I was working in the Krauss office for however long the, the, the rest of the run lasted, and I never saw the show. <gasps> no. So the big reason I had to do it was because I never got to see it, so I needed to see it, and the yeah. only way to see it was to produce it. I love that. That's a little arch of me. Anyway. <laughs> if this is a side note. I probably won't use this, but is your current office the old Krauss office? No. It isn't? No, no. Okay. But they were in that building, right? No. The office. Or was that, that Nico? Am I thinking of Nico? N- N- Nico was a floor above us okay. in the in the Sardi building. The Krauss office was in the Neil Simon. Oh, okay. And it, right. and it had been the, if you're interested, you can cut this later if you want, but it's kind of cool. The Krauss office was a, a duplex apartment connected by a spiral staircase that used to be where Al and Vin <gasps> lived together. of Alvin Theater. Before it was the Neil Simon, it was known as the Alvin Theater. Well, it wasn't named for Alvin anybody. It was named for Al and Vin, and they were an item, and they lived in that apartment, okay? So it was a place where they lived. And then, (laughs) um, this was the apocryphal tale, I don't know if it's true, but one of them ended up hanging himself (gasps) in in one of the closets behind where Irv Siders was sitting when I started working there. And oh Irv God. loved to tell that story. I have no <laughs> idea if it's true, but in any case. Dark. Um, yeah. Yes. So uh, so Marvin was there for quite some time. And then actually, I think Manny Eisenberg took over that space when Marvin moved mm. to um, the Sardi building. Okay, we yeah. are not cutting any of that, yeah. by the way. <laughs> that was a great piece of I history. Had, I, yeah. I didn't even know about Alan at that Mm, yeah. Anyway, yeah. how great. Yeah. Well, I also love the, you know, if you want something done, do it yourself. You know, if you want to see dancing, produce it yourself. There, right? there you go. <laughs> so so um, there was this sort of personal connection to Marvin yeah. that I kind of felt it was my 
almost uh, spiritual duty to continue, <laughs> even though they didn't invite me to see it. I felt like this was meant to be, you yeah. know? Um, and then because of the relationship I have with Barry, I definitely, you know, just, I love working with Barry. I love working with the old globe. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't want to turn that down. Then I met Wayne. <laughs> And that sealed the deal. Because here's the other funny thing. I, I, I remember exactly where I sat in the Krauss office. And there was this guy from Danson who came to visit so many times and he'd walk by my desk, never talked to the guy, but I recognized him. It was Wayne. Uh. <laughs> and, and, and when I said this to him the first time we met, he went, oh my God, oh yeah. He sort of kind of remembered that whole thing. Uh, and I said this on opening night and I actually meant it. W Wayne is the brother I didn't know I had until I started working on this show. We, yeah. I, I love working with him. We, we really kind of have this mind meld and we can say anything to each other. We fight, it doesn't matter. You know, we argue, it doesn't matter because we both know that we're doing it because we care about what's best for the show. And so after sitting for a time with him, I went, oh, this, I, I mean, I got I I got to do this in whatever whatever way I can help. I want I wanted to help, and then I met with Nicole, and we got along also, and so it just all felt like I was in service to this 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 goal that that she had had for quite some time, and and that Barry was now trying to make happen. That Wayne wanted to, and one of the things that you know, inspires me to do what I do is to enable others to do what they do. Cause mm. you know, what do I do? You know, I'm, not, I, I'm, I, I'm amazed that what, you know, people like Wayne are capable of doing. And so I know that I can create uh, structures, both economic and otherwise, where that work can get done. And so to me, it was like, oh my God, I, I, I was called to this. In, in, in many respects, I felt called to it. And, and therefore I, I almost had no choice. <laughs> Because it it felt you know too too important and too good to not do it and then and then as you know as as I got more and more involved um, with more and more of the folks you know connected to it you're absolutely right there's no way do you work on anything unless you love it it's hard enough to do any of this stuff when you do love it. Uh, but to not love something that you're spending all this time on that you're going to have to see over and over again, it's uh, no. And I've now seen, I don't know how many times I've seen the show. I can't keep track, but I never get tired of watching it. I, Because I, I, there are 16 unbelievable people on stage at any given moment. You can only look at what, two or three of them yeah. at, a, at, a, at a single glance. And so there's just so much going on. In fact, a number of people, both at the Old Globe and in New York already, have come back multiple times to see the show because of what I just said. It's obviously very entertaining, but you miss some of it because there's so much going on and it goes by so fast. The treasurer at the, uh, at the music box said that he's never seen this early in the run so many people come to the box office after they've seen the show to buy tickets to see it again. And he's been doing this for 20 years. It was just, it's, it's, that, kind of a, it's that kind of an experience. So, so for me, it was, you know, uh, to call it a labor of love, sure. But, I, <laughs> you know, it was, it was 
elemental in, in many respects. Well, you're talking to two of those repeat yeah. offenders. So I, I, I would, I would dare say mm. that, uh, we, we, we are probably just below you in terms of number of times seeing for a certain period of time. I was actually banned from buying tickets. Oh, I actually had to buy some, <laughs> I reached I the limit, tickets you know, on telecharts. And I was like, okay, all right, we get it. Well, yeah. speaking of opening night in that same curtain speech, you referenced a moment ago, you also said it's a miracle just to get something to Broadway, right? Your work doesn't end the day after the show opens. So what do you, what does your job entail now that the show is up and running? It's not like, you know, and I say this to young people who ask me the difference between TV and, and movies and the theater, like, where should I work? And I go, well, I don't know where you should work, but <laughs> here's what I'll tell you. When you're working on TV, you work on something or movie, you work on it. And when it's done, it's done. You know, it, it's in a can and that's it. Whereas in theater, it's never done. You never actually finish. You open, but there is all kinds of maintenance. There's all kinds of keeping it going, keeping it fresh, having to replace people as their contracts expire. We're certainly not there yet, but there's an enormous amount of that kind of thing that goes into keeping the show as pristinely perfect as it was on opening night. That involves stage managers, that involves associate uh, director choreographers, that involves a lot of people, Wayne also coming to note the show. So, so from a creative aspect, that's ongoing. But from, from a producerial uh, perspective, we're still having to sell tickets. We're still having to promote the show. We're still needing to get the word out because it, it, especially in this environment where there's so many things competing for an audience's attention, you need to keep at it. You can't just rest on the fact that you opened and you got a bunch of great reviews because that might've worked back in the day. It doesn't work at all anymore. So, so there's, there's a whole lot of work involved in, in keeping the show in the public view, okay? There's, you know, we, we went on uh, Good Morning America after we opened. We're, we're hoping to go on one of the late night shows. Um, there's even a thought that if we can finagle it, we're gonna go on So You Think You Can Dance or one of those shows. Yeah. So there's a lot of that work that involves, you know, our participating. If we're lucky enough to get nominated for a Tony, there's an enormous amount of work that goes into, well, what are we going to do on the telecast and how are we putting that together? And it, you know, you generally can't do exactly the same number that you do on, on, on in the show. So it has to be modified. Who, who, who gets involved in that decision-making and you have to collaborate with the Tony producers. You have to collaborate with the director. I mean, there's just a lot of other work that goes into that. So it's maintaining the show, it's, it's um, keeping the word out, getting more and more folks to wanna see it, and then doing all the things that one must do to, to keep it in the public view. Um, the, the road conference is coming up in a, few, in a few weeks. I want the show to go on the road. I think it would be perfect on the road, mm -hmm. but the presenters need to see it. And, and, you know, they might have questions. I want to be available to answer them. So there's, there's a lot of, of uh, back and forth that goes on in that process. Because ultimately, yes, do I want the show to recoup and make lots of money? Absolutely. Do I want it to win every award it deserves? Absolutely. Is that what's driving me? No. What's driving me is I want more people to see this show. I want more people to experience what I experience, what you have obviously experienced. <laughs> because... 
it's not like anything else. It really is in its own lane. When you think about current Broadway shows, there's really nothing like it. I think we have a sort of obligation almost to make sure that potential audiences understand that that's what this is. And often people will come and they will be shocked. They'll go, oh, I thought I was going to a revival. <laughs> and and I didn't know it was going to be like this. So somehow we need to get that across as much as possible because I think I think if people understood that that's what the experience would be, they would be much more inclined to come right away. Now, some people can be diffident. They'll go, well, you know, I'll wait and see. Does it get nominated? Is it going to be on the tele? Whatever, whatever people use to make choices about what they go to see because there's a lot of choices to make in this season. All of that is part of, of, of the ongoing job of a producer to, to keep the show alive in every conceivable way. Well, I have to ask you what has increasingly become the impossible question on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And that is, do you have a favorite moment or song? I'm sorry, you're breaking up. What, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> Pick I, your I, favorite I, child is what I'm asking, really. Um, <laughs> you, you know, honest to God, I don't. Yeah. And part of it is that I have three kids. And if you asked me if I had a favorite kid, there'd be no way I would answer that question because I don't. Yeah, I love yeah. each one of my kids differently because they're each different, but my God, no. I would never be able to say I, I had a favorite. And honestly, I love every minute of this show. Mm. I love every one of those dancers. Every time they go on, I marvel at what they're capable of doing. And I just go, oh my God, they're so great. And, and because I'm lucky enough to see it as often as I have, it's like, oh, I never noticed that she does that. Or I never realized that they were doing that at that moment. And there's just constant discovery in, in that respect. But, but it's also just being actually in awe of their, of their talent and their devotion. Like these folks love what they're doing. All 22 of them are so happy to be doing this show. And it shows every night when they perform it, they are so devoted and dedicated. By the way, this is the first show I've ever done where we've had an out of town and the exact same principal team uh, cast has arrived on Broadway. Usually you lose a couple of people. Usually there's, you know, somebody gets another job, whatever. But that happened with the understudies. It did not happen with the, with the 16, um, non-understudies. I don't know what, I don't know. I don't want to make a distinction because to me, they're all part of the same company. Yeah. It's an ensemble of principles and they are, they are all amazing. But, but uh, no, I have no, I can honestly say there, I do not have any favorite moments. It's whatever moment I happen to be looking at is my go. favorite. Well, that was the right answer, Joey. <laughs> so you passed the test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spoken like the gentleman that you are. <laughs> um, so we have uh, uh, two final questions, and I'm sure this one will be much easier to answer. And that is, what does Bob Fosse mean to you? You know, it's funny. I don't have any real association with Bob Fosse. I was a Michael Bennett guy. Uh oh. I, I worked on Dream Girls. Yeah. I worked on, you know, the thing that never came to fruition called mm. Scandal. Yeah. But I was very much in the orbit of Michael Bennett for the the years that I was working at the Krauss office from 1981 until, you know, we brought we brought the tour of Dream Girls back to right. Broadway in 1987. And so for me, 
that was my that was my world. That's how I grew up. That's that's what I, how I learned what I learned. And you know, I knew that Bob Fosse existed, but I didn't have any relationship to him at all. And I will tell you what I have learned working on this show, because because obviously Bob Fosse is an icon, and so I was interested in participating in that. But I already told you. The, ultimate reasons why, the deeper reasons why I wanted to do the show. What I learned though, is the, the depth of his choreographic capability, the, 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 the scope of, of his um, style, okay, is so not what most people have thought it is, mm. okay? Nothing against Chicago because it's fabulous that it's run this long, but because it's run this long, people have associated that style of choreography, the white gloves, the bowler hats, this, you know, they think that's Fosse. In fact, some people have actually commented after coming to dancing, well, this isn't authentic Fosse choreography <laughs> because it's not what I know from Chicago. And we wanna go, no, 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 you don't understand because that's the thing that I think is so revelatory about the production. That's why I think Nicole wanted to do this so much and why once I understood that, why I, I was a complete and utter buy-in because, because no, no one choreographs like this yeah. today. There are great choreographers today, obviously, but, but this style is so specific to him and, and, and yet, there's such variety in it. That was the thing that shocked me. It was like, oh, he does that? Oh, that? You know, you know, there, there's, there's so much richness in what he created and, and what Wayne has done so smartly is he's, he's put it all together. He's drawn choreography from other sources, not just from the original production of Dancing, and he's put it all together so that literally every step you see on that stage is a Bob Fosse choreographed step, okay? The genius of our production is that Wayne figured out how to put all of that together so that it feels like one thing. So for me, that's Bob Fosse. Like, oh my God, I had no idea that he had that depth of, of choreographic artistry. I just, I just didn't. And now that I know, I feel even better that we did the show. Cause you know, a lot of people weren't aware of that, right? Because the show hasn't been done in all these years. Well, we asked both Wayne and Nicole this question. So we'll close by asking you this. And we asked them because it was asked of Bob Fosse uh, mm -hmm. by his cast in 1978 during an early preview. They asked him, uh, if you could get anything out of the show, what would you want to get out of it? And his answer was more hair, which you know, <laughs> pretty good. So we want to ask you, you know, what is your wish for this, this new production of, of Danson? My wish is for, it, I kind of said it already, that, yeah. that we manage to keep it running on Broadway. We get it on the road. We do it in Europe. We do it in South America. We do it in Australia. We, we spread the Fosse of it all <laughs> around the world so that more people know and appreciate what he actually did because it's singular. He is iconic, yes, but it's easy to use those words and it's easy to kind of, you know, just say, oh, he was great, but only with, 
only with experiencing the actual choreography performed, by the way, by unbelievably talented people, because this is not easy stuff, mm. right? But to be performed by unbelievably talented people, I think that that is the, that's the mission of the show, is, mm. to, is to get as many people in the world as possible to experience this so that they can appreciate and know just what a genius he was, but, but also so that they can have this sense of joy and ecstasy that those of us who go to see the show on a regular basis, <laughs> um, or even just once, you know, most people come out of that theater high because it's that kind of energy and you, you can't help but fall in love with each of those 16 people because you get to see each of them in a moment. You, you, you know, it isn't, it isn't like a big chorus. It's not like a chorus. It's really 16 individuals and you fall in love with them. So you're falling in love with each one of them and you're seeing them do choreography that no one else has ever, you know, no one comes close to doing today. And the more people who get to experience that, to me, that's success. We have to spread the gospel of Fosse. There you go. Yeah. Joey, I, I know I speak for Rob when I say we are so delighted that you joined us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for having us be a part of the dancing team because yeah. that has been a real privilege and honor and so much fun to, to just be in the room and watch it happen. And thank you for all of it. Thank, thank you for this. And also thank you for your, your ardent support and love for the show. It means a lot. It does. It really does mean a lot. A dancing man. A dancing man, a dancing man with footsteps on the sand. Bob Fosse's Dancing is now on Broadway at the Music Box Theater. For tickets and more information, visit dancinbway.com. Dancing Man, a Fabulous Invalid podcast, is a production of OM Etc. and the Fabulous Invalid LLC, and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to Civilian for hosting us, and to our audio engineer, Kyle Moore. If you liked this episode, we've got over 100 episodes of the Fabulous Invalid podcast that you can check out, including a two-parter on the life, work, and legacy of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.